The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. So we've been going through the gospel of Luke and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 18. If you were here last week, we, we looked at a, at a well-known parable, a story that Jesus told between a Pharisee and a tax collector, right? They both went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee was thanking God about how awesome he was and, and all the different things that he had done. And he's like, God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of the scum that's here. And there's a Pharisee. He's in the back. This is my paraphrase. He's in the back. He's got his head hung low. He's asking for mercy as he pounds his chest because he realizes the more that he looks at the perfection of God, he does not measure up. And everybody's listening to the story and Jesus says, hey, I just want to throw you a curveball. The guy who's got his head hung low asking for mercy has gone home justified in good relationship with me, not the guy who you think has it all together. That's where the record goes. What? And everybody's like, wait a minute. Like, we hear that, and it's like, of course. You should not think that way. Now, there's people in attendance when he tells this story. And so as we continue to look at the text in Luke from now until Luke 19, verse 10, really the whole section, all four of these sermons are answering the one question. Who's justified? Who has entered the kingdom of heaven? How can we know we have eternal life? And so really we're going to meet three examples of the parable that was told last week by Jesus. And if you missed that, you can go online and you can hear that. But today we're going to meet a good man who's sad. He's sad. Why? You'll find out in a moment. But he's representing the self-righteous Pharisee from the parable. Next week, we're going to meet a blind man. He's physically blind, but spiritually this man can see. He's got 20-20 vision. Right? And so he's representing really the children who are coming to Christ. I got nothing except hope that you'll help me. Right? And then next week, it, it's so masterful. Jesus just puts it all together. He's like, well, so what about rich men? What about rulers? What about sinners? And you're going to meet this wee little man, Zacchaeus. And you're going to wonder, how can he ever get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, he can because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so we're going to meet a lost man who's found. And so that's, that's really the succession that we're looking at. And he represents the living miracle that we all have either experienced if we're trusting in Jesus or desperately need. Okay? So let's get to work. Each and every one of these people, by the way, are examples of failure or successes of entering into the kingdom. Okay? So keep that in mind as we look. So Luke 18, verse 18, coming out of the parable, right? And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Great question. We all want to know, or, or we should want to know. Let's say it that way, right? Jesus, however, though, he never simply answers the question, right? It's pretty direct. It's pretty forward. How, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus knows this man, and he makes the ruler think beyond surface level. He doesn't just give him the answer. As a matter of fact, he's going to do much more for this man. It, it appears that this man is using the word good almost at a surface level understanding, maybe too casually, right? And Jesus picks up on it. We don't know why, but it's possible because he's trying to flatter Christ, right? Well, my good man, here's how, right? Maybe that's what's going on here. We don't know. But, but Jesus hones in on that word 
good. And, and he makes it clear that no one should just use the word good casually. Now, we do. In our culture, I think it's very acceptable and understandable to say, man, that chicken salad was good, right? You would never use that, like, good for bacon unless it's just bad, right? Because <laughs> bacon's great. But, like, chicken salad, it's good. It's good. I can live the rest of my life, never have it. Jews, Hebrew people in that culture would just never throw around the word good casually, especially in, in relation to a human. Oh, good teacher, right? In our day and time, we might. But good to a person at that time, that was only reserved for God. It's only reserved for God. God's goodness is a constant theme throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, as you're reading through the Old Testament, just highlight every time you read about God's goodness, whether it's explicit or implicit, highlight it. And then flip through at the end of the year and see how many marks you have for the goodness of God. This is the only one who's good is God. So when this man says, hey, good teacher, how do I get in? Well, Jesus doesn't miss the opportunity. By the way, just a few verses to, to think on God's goodness. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Psalm 34.8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So, so when we use the word good to define a human, we're really just scratching at, at the bottom, right? And so Jesus hears this, and he says, what's going on here to this man? Essentially, he, why do you call me good, he says. <laughs> Could you just imagine that? Hey, good friend. Hey, why do you call me good? I don't recommend you do this. You're not Jesus. But then he says this, no one is good except God alone. Right? Since he's saying that word, yeah, that word, I don't, I don't think you know what that word means. I don't think it means what you think it means. He's saying, think about what you're saying. Because if you're calling me, essentially what Jesus is saying, if you're calling me good, if indeed I am a good teacher, and if God alone is only good, well then, who I am, what I say, how I live, and what I do ought to be of infinite importance to you. And so if you really believe that, then everything I say from here on out, you better heed it as though God's speaking it to you. Oh, by the way, he is. He's calling this man to intellectual integrity. That's it's really what he's calling him to. Do you really believe what you say? Okay, well, let's find out. By the way, don't miss how Jesus masterfully does this. He gets the man to focus on God's goodness. Why? So he can see, yeah, I'm not good. See, the more you look at God's perfections, his holiness, who he says he is in his word, the more you realize, oh, I'm not good. I'm a great sinner in great need. See, when we look at each other, I can tell you right now, there's a couple of you in here, probably I could say, yeah, I'm, I'm better than that. I'm better than that. A couple of you, I'm like, no way. See, it's, it's real easy when we look at other humans. And, and we don't generally do that with people in our own lives too much. We like to take the big ones in history. Well, at least I'm not as bad as... Right? I mean, well, it's a great accomplishment. You're not as bad as Hitler? That's your moral? That's your line. You didn't authorize six million Jews to be slaughtered? You, you think that's... Well, that's the definition. At least I'm not that bad. But when we look at God, 
Oh, you, you have no choice. If you see him properly, then to hang your head low, beat your chest, and say, oh, God, have mercy on me. And so when this man's calling Jesus good, he, Jesus is saying, do you even know what you're saying? Do you even understand the words you use? Right? C.S. Lewis really, he, he fleshed this out in thought. I'm going to give you a quote of his. It's, it's a little lengthy, but I think it's well worth reading. He says, a man who, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit, or um, yeah, you can spit at him, kill him, and mock him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Right? So, so people say, yeah, I'm cool with Jesus. I just don't believe he's God. Well, Jesus ain't cool with you. You think you're flattering him. You're, you're not flattering him. Right? He, he said he's the way to eternal life. Follow me if you want eternal life. Believe in me if you want eternal life. Drink my blood, eat my flesh if you want eternal life. He doesn't mean that in a physical sense. He's saying, you must consume me. And then we say, yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. But if he's not telling the truth, he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he can't be a good man. And if he's not a good man, and if he's not a liar, then he's an absolute lunatic. Right? So when this man comes up and says, good teacher, what must I do? Jesus said, I've been telling you for three years. And you've been hearing, and you still think that there's something you, and this is the point, can do. Because well, you want to do it. And he, he will not share his glory with anyone. So he continues. He continues to draw him in. Look at verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. I love how he plays to his, his self-righteous tendency. Come on, man. You, you could tell me them all, and you could tell me how you've done them. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I, I love how Jesus just casually throws out some commandments. Come on, you know them, right? It's like an acid test. By the way, notice his acid test is how he relates to other humans. Don't miss that. How we relate to other people as God's people is always the indicator of God at work in your life. It's not primarily your quiet times. Boy, we want it to be quiet times, right? I, we sit, I, don't, I don't do this, but people, you sit there and you get an aesthetic picture and you say, I'm having a great quiet time. So much so I've had to post it and let the whole world know how great my quiet time with God is. And everybody says, well, that's amazing. It's not amazing. It looks so serene. I can't imagine sinning in a moment like that. But how about when you're just trying to love some people who just every time you push in to love them, they just they push back, they jab you, they bite you, they kick you. Not physically, hopefully, sometimes physically. How do you respond then? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Are you filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? If so, that's a great sign that the work of God is happening in your life. But it's always in relation to others. Jesus names them. He picks the commands that are about loving your neighbor. He says, how'd you do with that? <laughs> the reason, I think the reason he did this is because he understands this man's question is so selfish. 
so self-focused, and he wants him to think about other people, not himself primarily. But notice, look what he says. All of these I have kept from my youth. I mean, this guy, he got all the badges, right, for Awanus and all the different things. He knows all the Bible songs. He's got more patches on his coat than anyone else. I've done it all, Jesus. I've done, and, and Jesus could have easily been like, mm, no, no, I remember that one time, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that. By the way, it, if he did do all these things, which we, we know he didn't, but if he did, at least not at a real level, right? But if he did, shouldn't he have good reason to feel comfortable standing before God? Imagine if you'd done these things. You'd feel pretty good, right? I'm ready to stand before him. But this just goes to show you that like works righteousness, trying to work your way into good standing with God never leads to peace. It only leads to more and more anxiety. Because what's enough? Is it, is it ever enough? Is it ever enough? Can I ever do enough to be sure that God will be pleased with me? And, and the answer is no. You can never do enough. If you could, Jesus would not have had to come to this earth in order to die in your place so that you might have life with God, right? So now, hear me clearly. Essentially, there is two ways to heaven. That'd be like false teacher alert, right? You can be perfect, but you can't be, or Jesus is perfect for you. That's the only way. I either trust in my perfection, you've all failed, or I trust in Jesus's perfection. This is it. And this man wants to trust in himself. He, he joins the long line of people in Luke that think they need no repentance. I'm not that bad. What do I have to repent of? Right? That's, this is how self-righteous religion works. Uh, not all Roman Catholics think like this, but at the core of their teaching, this is what they teach. You can never be sure that Jesus is sufficient. You have to continually do the things. Counting the rosaries, doing the prayers, all the sacraments, all these things. It's Jesus and my works. You just can never be sure. Now, I've met Roman Catholics who love Jesus. They're born again. I'm not saying that. I'm saying at the core of their teaching, it's works, rights, righteousness. It's you must do. Jesus did some things. You got to do some things. Let's hope it works out. If not, go to purgatory. Someone will pray you out. More works and you'll hopefully get there. I'm not picking on them. I'm saying that's a teaching that is not in accord with the Bible. Period. Muslim faith, same thing. I love my, my friends who are Muslims. I love them. I want them to repent of their sin, believe in Jesus. I want them to have eternal life. But every one of them have something in common. They're all very insecure as to whether, does God love me? Does God love me? And they don't know. And they work so hard to get God to love them because they have a sincere, some kind of sincerity of love for God. And what they need to know is God infinitely loves you. How do you know? Look at Jesus. Stop looking at what you do or what you don't do, where you failed. Look at every place Jesus has succeeded in your place and believe on him. Oh, this is what Jesus is saying, but he, he just, he knows this man and he loves this man. He doesn't even seek to to, to combat the outrageous claim that he's done all these things. So he continues. Instead, what does he do? He continues to show level of blindness. 
Look at, look at it with me. Luke 18, 22 and 23 says, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Pause. I'll, I'll read the last sentence in a moment. This is not a command in the Old Testament. So this man might be thinking, well, that's not in the law. I don't have to do that. Jesus knows the man's heart. He's gone right for his heart. He says, do this. This is not a command for all of you because if it is, well, we're all really not obeying Jesus here because you all have stuff, right? I have stuff. You have stuff. So this was specific for this man to just rip open the blinders and help this man see. You don't love other people. You love your stuff. But look what it says. But when he heard these things, he, the man, he became very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. Ooh. See, I got a good heart. Oh, yeah? Go do this and follow me. Have eternal life. Mm. Yeah, about that. Right? He, he wanted to know, what must I do? What must I do? I think it's very practical what he's saying. If you're going to follow me in my earthly ministry, you can't bring all your stuff. Go get rid of it and follow me. I'm, I'm eternal life. Follow me. And he's like, no, I, I won't do it. You ever done that? I did that for a year. <laughs> I did that for a year. I hear the gospel preached, and I just was like, mm, yeah, nope, not doing that. Jesus lays open this ruler's soul. He exposes him to the truth that he, he really doesn't love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not really. Nope. This man, instead, he loves his possessions. He, 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 loves, he, he loves the idea of eternal life. He loves the idea of God, but not really. Not really. One writer said his problem was not that he had great possessions, but that they had him. And I think that sums it up. I mean, to, to receive the treasure he wants, which is eternal life, life with God, the, the ruler has to give up the treasure that has him, and he's unwilling. He's unwilling. I'm, I'm not going to do it. It's my stuff. Can't I have both? Not in this way. Why? What was the real problem? Well, the real problem was he wanted to serve God and money, and the Bible is so clear you cannot do both. His problem was he had another God. His other God was mammon. It was money. It was riches. That's where he found his peace. That's where he found his identity. That's where he found his comfort. That's where he found everything he thought he wanted, but he found it now. And I'm not, I'm not willing to give that up. And so I'm just going to just keep trusting in me. What was going on here? He was exposed. Jesus kindly does this, by the way. It doesn't feel kind when it happens. But Jesus often will just lay us open. And say, that right there has got to go. I don't know what that is. But, but you've all experienced it if you've, if you've ever met the Lord. Every one of you have experienced it. And you'll continue. It's not like a one-time thing. He continues to just show you, you love that more than you love me. Let it go. I'm not going to sing. And, and we don't want to. We do not want to. Because well, because it brings me a lot of the things that God should bring you. And it just fails. He continues. Look at 24 through 27. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
By the way, I'll keep reading in a minute, but let's, let's just pause for a moment. We're so wealthy. We don't think we're so wealthy because we compare ourselves to the rich and famous in the United States. But by and large, we're very wealthy. Um, like clothing, right? Just basic needs, clean water, all these different things. We're, we're really wealthy. So are we, are we doing something wrong? I, I, don't, I don't think we are. Wealth in the Bible can be seen as a blessing. It, it is a blessing. Abraham was extremely wealthy. King David, extremely wealthy. Wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. And they love God. Can't I have money and love God? Answer, yes. It's a blessing. But I will tell you this. We learn from this text, it can be a real barrier. It can be a real barrier to coming to know and to love and to pursue God. So you better be aware. You just better be aware. And, and if you think, well, it's not me. Oh, you're probably in more danger than you realize if you think that. He's not talking to me. I would totally disagree. Oh, he's definitely talking to you. Well, I don't got much, but what you have has you. Right? So, so we understand money, it, it's, it can be seen as an absolute blessing, and you should. But it can be a real barrier to spiritual growth and pursuit of Christ. So you ought to be aware and you ought to keep your eyes open and your heart open and humbly come before the Lord and say, if anything has me, Lord, let me know, let me see, and let me give freely because I have all in you. Right? So so that's just a side note. So then he says, for it's easier. I think this is funny, by the way. And I I think it's meant to be funny. I think it's a really great joke. So imagine the moment, it's tense. And when I feel tense moments, I'm like, I better crack a joke. (laughs) I think that's what's happening here, right? It was tense here. So thank you, Jesus. He goes on. He says, for it's easier for a camel. By the way, a camel was the largest animal in that time and that place. They're thinking elephants, right? They're thinking humongous, right? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> and those who heard it, the disciples, they, they said, then who can be saved? Right? They're tracking with Jesus, the good teacher. That's, ready? Impossible. And he's saying, that's right. That's right. It, it really is. This is long before, honey, I shrunk the kids. This is, there is no, honey, I shrunk the camel. You're not getting it through. And I've had, I've read Bible teachers that take this and they don't love God and they don't love God's word. I'm just telling you that right now. And they try to make some intellectual statement that there was a neat, there was a gate in Israel and it was called the camel's gate or the eye of the needle. And so for a camel to enter through that gate, you had to take its packs off and it had to get down low and suck in its stomach and squeeze through the eye of the needle. And I'm just telling you right now, that's garbage. It's garbage because that means that Jesus is saying it is possible. It's not what he's saying. And, there, and there, by the way, there's, there was no eye of the needle back then. Gate, right? Just, just people just making up stuff. What he's saying is, they're saying, how do I get in? And he's saying, well, I'm not going to answer that one either. Um, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they're like, that's impossible. You're paying attention. You're paying attention, class. That's exactly right. Because look what he says next. But he said, but 
He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. A camel can't go through the eye of the needle any more than you and I, apart from God doing something in our place, can get to heaven. All other religions are about evolving your way to God, being good enough, getting to God, working to God. The gospel is God comes down, right? It's not about evolving to God. It's about God coming and descending and revealing himself to us and saying, trust me, I got you. I got you. Believe in me. Right? This is what Jesus is saying over and over and over. It's not what you do. It's what I'm going to do in your place. And now you just believe me. Believe me. Faith. So so don't miss the point. Here's the point in the map. Self-salvation is impossible for the rich and the poor. By the way, that's really all there is. And then we say middle class. Okay, it's impossible for them too. (laughs) Salvation requires a miracle and is a gift from God to man. Okay? This is not confusing, but I'm going to tell you right now, and you might be thinking, oh my goodness, how is it the same point in the same sermon every week? I'm just trying to preach what's here, okay? And here's what I'll tell you, you need to hear this over and over again, every time. We're so wired to think that salvation is a man thing. A woman thing. It's what we do, right? It's, it's primarily about a human response. And, and we forget that the Bible teaches over and over and over, salvation belongs to the Lord. He did it, not you. You're trusting in Him. You're trusting in His work. Our, our contemporary American culture, Christian and in general, by the way, have been so indoctrinated to the idea that we can always improve ourselves. We can always obtain our goals. Now, by the way, I would say that's fine if we're talking about cutting carbs and shredding abs. That's fine. You can do that, right? But if if we're talking about getting our way, working our way to being perfect before God on our own labor, it's not helpful, that idea. It's actually not helpful at all. I've seen the message of the gospel package of, as a religion of good people um, just getting better. Clean ourselves up just a little bit more, right? Uh, they don't cuss and they don't watch bad movies and all those things. I'm not saying you should cuss. I'm not saying you should watch bad movies. But if that's our understanding of that's God's people, how lame. Just how lame is the idea that people who watch mostly lame TV and listen to mostly lame music, somehow that means, boy, they're pleasing in God's sight. Oh, we've lowered the bar so low. We, we, the gospel is about coming to grips with our, the reality that you and I are never going to be good enough. And God, here's how bad we are. God sent his son to die in our place because we could never be good enough. He shed his blood in order for us to come and receive life with him. It's what it requires, right? So the idea that we can always improve ourselves and obtain salvation is is not just like some harmless misconception. And it's all through churches, I'm telling you. You ask people, I just had a conversation this week. How How do I know that I could be saved? How can I be saved? And then the question was, how does salvation even work? We're going to talk about that next week and the week after. We're going to look at it a little more in depth to understand how does this miracle take place? Because we want, we want to know. 
But self-salvation is not just difficult, it's absolutely impossible, right? And that's the point, and that's the point, but this idea has caused so many problems. It lies at the root of, of much burnout in the Christian walk because you just keep trying to be better and you just, the more you try, the harder it becomes because the, the, the goal keeps moving, just keeps moving. You can never be sure. Uh, disillusionment, um, resentment, and, and ultimately, I think, I think it's so at the core of, of de-churching. I just think it's so at the core of people leaving the church because I just can't do it. You can't. That's the point. You, you can't do it. Jesus did it. That's why it's called good news, not like lame news. Like Jesus did some stuff, and if it's meant to be, it's up to you now. You got to finish the deal. He met you halfway. You got to go the other 50. He did it all 100%. Trust him. It's good news. It's, it's such good news. It will literally change your life. And that's the understatement maybe I've ever made. See, my, my favorite verse when it comes to this probably is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And um, Martin Luther called it the great exchange. And you'll see why as I read it. He said, the text says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So think, think on the words. God willingly, Kevin used a, a big word in his prayer called propitiation. Put forth his son as a wrath remover. He, he sent his son to be sin. Jesus never sinned. He took our sin. He took the sin of the world upon himself. He became sin. We deserve the cross. We deserve death. Jesus says, I don't deserve any of that but I will willingly take your place. See the great exchange? I will become an enemy of God so that enemies like you and I can then become the, essentially the children of God. I, the Son of God, Jesus would say, will take the wrath. I'll become an enemy so the enemies, these sinners, can become like me, a son, but not like me in the sense of God, right? But they can be adopted into the family. So he says, for God for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Christ, in Jesus, by trusting in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning, we have his perfect life in our, right, in our account. When God looks upon you, all your sin was put on Christ. And all his righteousness was put on you. You not only have forgiveness of sin, you actually have imputed righteousness, not your righteousness you do. It's righteousness that was given to you. It was a gift. You receive it. How? By grace, through faith in Christ alone. That's it. So when God looks upon you, he does not see you in all your wretched sinfulness. What he sees when he looks at you is, and by the way, is not a bunch of little Jesuses running around. He sees you trusting in Jesus, and he says, that's my son, that's my daughter. I have no more anger. I have no more wrath for them. Why? Because I already satisfied my wrath and anger upon my son. So now they can receive blessing and delight for all of eternity. It's a great exchange. That's a good deal. Yeah. I'll take it. I did take it. I keep receiving it. Why? Because I know I have no chance to get in heaven apart from Jesus. At the end of the day, when I stand before God, 
I've got one hope. Jesus Christ died to save a sinner like me. That's it. Well, and I'm a pastor. Who cares? It's not my identity. It's not my identity. I am a child of the living God because Jesus Christ died to save sinners like me and make me his own. By the way, the same is true for you. If you're trusting in Christ, you're like, yeah, I think he, he, he mostly just puts up with me. No, he delights in you. Why? Because he delights in his son. And you're in his son. And his son's in you. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you. He loves you while you're a wretch, ungodly sinner. Of course he loves you now. I don't even think it's I think it's fair to say more or differently. Maybe differently is a better word. Right? This man though, this rich man, he's not told to try harder. He's he's told to surrender. Give up trying. Are you, so I'm going to ask you personally today, are you trying to make yourself pleasing to God apart from faith? Because if you are, it's miserable. How do I know? Been there, done that, got a t-shirt. It's just miserable. And I think it's so offensive to God. Why? Because what you're saying is Jesus is not enough. I got to add to what he's done. And I know you would not say that, but, but that's what you're saying. See, amazingly, on the cross, Jesus willingly surrendered and has given us all that we need to be saved, men and saved women. Uh, once again, Martin Luther is helpful on this point. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. It means teaching. Most necessary is it that we know this article, this teaching well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. This is my kind of guy, by the way. Um, <laughs> see what he's saying? He says it's not a one-time thing. You, you need the gospel as much on day one when you came to faith as much as you do in day 1080, right? And on and on and on. Which is why we continually seek to preach, teach, sing, pray, understand, go deep, into this beautiful multifaceted gem we call the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done to save sinners like us. It's not the entryway in and then we move on to these greater things and we can finally understand some obscure teaching in the Hebrew text. Unless it points to Jesus, I'm not really excited. I'm just really not excited. But all of the scripture points to Jesus. All of the scripture points to the gospel, which is why we seek, by God's grace, to be a gospel-centered people. We come around the throne of grace, this good news that Christ has done. Well, all of that happens, and Peter, our boy, he says, in verse 28 and 30, he says, See? <laughs> I don't know how he says it, by the way. I shouldn't do that. He says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, I don't know if he's expecting Jesus to turn around and be like, You sure did. High five. Fist bump. Way to go, bud. And he, but, but look, he says, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the gospel, the kingdom of God, who now, now listen to the language and be shocked, who will not receive many times more. Here's the phrase in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now that's interesting. 
because that's not how most of us think. We think that all the benefits, all the bennies come when we die or Jesus returns. But he said, that's not what the text says. In who will not receive many more times in this time. Now, prosperity preachers would say, that's right. Just believe it. Conceive it. Let it happen. You're going to be rich. Right? Because that's, that's, that's what it says. That's not exactly what it says. But I would say this before we pick too much on people who don't understand the Word of God. Um, we should be able to say, well, the math is not mathing. Right? I, my buddy Sam, she said that phrase to me one time. I didn't even understand it. Uh, the math ain't mathing. I had to look it up. And I was like, oh, so it's just a phrase for something that doesn't add up. I got it. Why don't we just say that? I don't know. And, um, and so, but I thought this is a great, great phrase for what's happening. Because I love Jesus math, and that math ain't mathing. Peter, James, John, all these guys and the disciples that are following Jesus, they left it all behind. And he's saying, and if you do that, you'll get more. And if we would say in the life that's to come, we would all say, amen. But he says now and then. And if I'm Peter, I'm like, I don't have a fishing boat. I don't have nets. I actually don't have a place to lay my head because I'm following you and you're a homeless messiah. What about now? <laughs> By the way, if you think, well, it gets better when Jesus dies and resurrects. Nope, Peter's going to be crucified upside down, homeless, broke, all the things. So help me make sense of this, because at first glance, it seems very contradictory in nature. Jesus says that those who make sacrifices for the kingdom of God will receive a reward now and in the time to come. Look, it says receive many times more in this time. This time. That's the phrase that's bugging me. <laughs> Not really, but it really is. I mean, count all that you have as loss. That's what he's saying, right? And gain so much more now and in the life that is to come. By the way, this is not for some super Christians on steroids. This is, you ready? Basic Christianity. Basic. This is basic Christianity. This is Christianity 101. How do I know? Because Jesus has been saying it all through Luke. Luke 14, says this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And you might think, well, I'm... I'm just a Christian, not a disciple. Er, wrong. You make those two separate things. They're not two separate things. Christians are disciples. Disciples are Christians. Christian, little Christ-like follower. That's what it means. Disciple, apprentice of Jesus. You're the king. I'm not ever going to be the king, but I'm going to follow you. I'm going to learn from you. And he's saying this is the entry in. What? Renounce it all. Well, that seems like a lot. It is. Well, if I do that, what do I gain? Everything, when, now, and forevermore. <laughs> That's a head scratcher. Um, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8 says this, I count everything as loss because, listen, of the surpassing, underline it, think about it, worth of knowing Christ my Lord. To know Jesus is great gain. It's great treasure. He is the treasure. You have eternal life now. We always think about eternal life is when I someday am in the old folks' home because we always imagine living that long. I don't actually know if I want to. Um, 
We imagine being old and crusty and not being able to move and someone has to feed us and bathe us and change our deity. And then when I die, in a peaceful moment, in my sleep, I'll go before the Lord Jesus and I'll gain everything then. That's, just, that's not how the Bible teaches. The moment you come to have faith in the Lord Jesus, you have eternal life now. You have treasure now. You have, ready? You're an inheritor of all that is his. What's he own? Everything. Now, you can't go claiming all that, right? You can't be like going up to a couple kids and be like, you're mine. <laughs> You'll get arrested for that. <laughs> you might have a great ministry through that, though. You never know. I don't recommend it. <laughs> a few verses later, though, the Apostle Paul would say this, brothers, join in, 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 in imitating me. I count everything as loss. I trust Jesus to be my treasure. Now he says, and, and everybody's like, yeah, he's an apostle. No, he says, now you join me and follow me as I follow Jesus like this. The question for you is, question for me is, would you willingly look around to the people in your life and say, follow me as I follow Christ? Or would you be too embarrassed of too many things in your life? And if that's the case, what needs to change? Because you got to remember, and we're going to get there. Oh, I promise we're going to get there. The gospel of God's grace is transformative. It not only pardons, but it empowers, right? It, he gives us his spirit to be more like Christ. And we should be able to look around the people, flawed as we are, and say, oh man, follow me as I'm following Christ. Well, yeah, but okay, you're right. I know I, there's some areas I need to grow. But, but listen, family. How will we ever make disciples if we ourselves won't be a disciple? What needs to change? Ask God to do that miracle in your life. By the way, this is not so you can be pleasing to God. It's because you are pleasing to God. Big difference. Right? I want to be like my Father in heaven. Why? So he'll love me? No, because he does love me. Big difference, right? So make it known. Life Real and everlasting life is to be found in coming to Jesus Christ with empty hands, not walking away from him and grasping on to the things of this world. It's just not. Following Jesus is going to cost you. It will cost you. It has cost you if you followed him for any moment. It'll cost you everything. Make no mistake about it. But this, because this life's hard. It's hard. You're going to have to say no to things that not only are sinful, but that they're, they're good, but they're not ultimate. You're going to have to say no to certain dreams because you know what? It's not your dreams anymore. It's, it's your life, Lord. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. I lay my life down. I yield to you. You have your way with me. And, and this is what Jesus is calling us to. Nothing less. Nothing less. The rewards that are promised, by the way, are true in this world. Well, let, let me go over a few of those, and then we'll finish up. What are some of the rewards now? Well, let's just take a couple of big ones. How about the removal of God's wrath for you? No more. That's now. He has no wrath for you. Well, that's good news. How about God's righteousness, gifts, righteousness, full acceptance? He looks at you because you have faith in Jesus and he's pleased with you. That's good. How about redemption? Freedom from slavery to sin. You no longer, if you're in Christ, have to be a slave to sin. Period. It has no claim on you. 
You may engage in it. I'm not saying you may as in like you should. I'm saying you might be engaging in it, but it's not because you have to. Do you believe that? Or do you think, no, that's not true. I have to. You don't have to. You're a new creation. I'm not saying you never will again, but I think we just go there so quickly that we can't imagine living a life that is outwardly shown of the internal realities, which is I have God's righteousness, I have his spirit, therefore I do not have to give into this sin. Anytime someone makes you angry and you say nasty things and you say, I had to, you made me do it, you're lying. You didn't have to. You didn't have to. You willingly chose to. Now you should say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to grow in your grace. Forgiveness of all sins, every one of them. The worst thing you can imagine that you've ever done. Gone. On the cross, paid for. Past, present, and even the ones you're going to do later this afternoon, although I hope not. A restored relationship adoption, peace that surpasses all understanding because we have peace with God, right? Uh, Fellowship with his family, the church, not just this church. There's a lot of Christians in this city. Fellowship with all believers of all time, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is all more, so much more. What, What am I hanging on to that's better than this? Answer, Nothing. And none of it's eternal, by the way. Unless it be a human. But you don't own them. But you don't own them. It's all going to go away. So the math ain't mathing, but I like Jesus' math. I like it. I receive it. Right? What is the math? Here's the last statement. We give him our sin, and he gives us himself and everything with it. For, for now and forever. Yes, Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this stunningly beautiful news that you have done everything in Christ to make salvation possible for sinners like us. And so, Father, I do pray that for anyone who just has not been convinced of the gospel right now that your spirit would testify to the word that was preached and the truth of the word and cause their hearts and minds to believe. That they, would, that they might have some questions still, but the one thing that they'd be sure of is your absolute love to save sinners and that they would trust and believe in you. And as they do, that they would turn from trusting and believing in themselves and in their riches and in all the different things that they put their hope in that really can't be trusted and that they would put all their hope and trust in you. And Father, for those who have come to faith to believe this good news, Lord, I know that salvation is sure, it is final, and it is finished, but you're not done working in us and through us, and so I just pray that you continue to transform us to be more like Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in our thinking, in our living, Lord, that we might represent you to this city, that that they might come to know the great love of Jesus Christ for your name's sake through your people in this church. Lord, help us. Anything that has hold of us, I just pray that you would just open our hands to to just lay it down at your feet and say, Lord, have your way with me because it's the best life. 
And so, Lord, help us in all these ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.